Hello and welcome to the first episode of Series 2 of This Is Deep Play. I'm uh, Robert Malloy Vaughan, I'm joined by Joe Kennedy. Hello Robert. And we thought it would be appropriate to start it, to, to f record this episode uh, at Nunhead Cemetery, which we are at the gates at of right now, but there is a sign. Unfortunately, Nunhead Cemetery is closed due to reported sightings of the ghosts of Nunhead Football Club. Uh, dating back from to the 1940s, um, there's also a number of musical artists buried here who are having a Halloween knees up. We apologise for any inconvenience and are working hard to open as soon as possible, but not hard enough. So they we cut the exorcist here on time. Oh no, busters! That's a busy time of year for them. Um, <laughs> so we're going to go and record we're somewhere else, unless we decide to scale the. So we're just a looking for a suitably wall. gothic location for this episode, uh, which may well be my bedroom. <laughs> Mid-90s Camden. Right, let's go. After a trape through the uh, back streets, we have come to a pub to record this episode because Joe's hiding from his landlord's visit. Um, which I can understand. Um, I sound spectacularly mature. I am spectacularly mature, in fact. But I also thought maybe a pub would be more contributive to um, a slightly eerie Halloween atmosphere. I can't say exactly why there's something eerie about pubs in East Dulwich, but um, there's some. It's, it's not entirely light in here, is it? It's, you need to imagine this. And uh, it's murky. Oh, there's there's a, a stag's head on the wall. There is. It's like some Scottish hunting lodge which has been discovered and um, accessed by some uh, some lost hikers and they, they go in there and, and they, they find that it hasn't been opened up for a hundred years and there are cobwebs everywhere and then something terrifying happens, um, which would probably be nothing to do with football. But um, I think the housing crisis does infantilise us, by the way. Does infantilise Yes, it does. Um, I agree. Not with least because it kind of stops you having any hope of having children. Um, so you uh, end up um, living out some sort of early midlife crisis at a football club. <laughs> right, right, we're doing. This is a Halloween themed episode, and so we're talking about loss, death, disappearance, disappearance. Um, Maybe a bit of regret. Uh, so, what should we start with, Joe? I think, well, one of the things that we 
need to cover. One of the things I think which is, is spookiest in football is the, the phenomenon of the, the disappeared club and clubs can disappear in a couple of ways. So obviously there is the, the absolute disappearance of some teams, teams that cease to exist for whatever reason. We'll come on to an excellent example of one of them in a minute. Then there are clubs whose fortunes diminish somewhat. Um, clubs who have maybe drawn large attendances in the past and played a, a considerable role in the development of football in a particular area that then kind of drop below drop below the radar as it were and there are, there are a number of them um, and then I suppose there are resurrected clubs um, yeah, the kind of un, uncanny clubs who live on after a demise or, uh, and there are, there are different types of them as well um, probably more interested in the first two as, as it's somehow less spooky when when a club rises phoenix like to um yeah yeah i don't i don't find there any any gothic beauty in in afc wimbledon or, or maidstone or mm. maidstone are an interesting one though, and it did um it does jump out on me a little bit because maidstone were one of the um one of the first clubs who stopped existing in professional football when you know in my opinion watching the game them and, them and Aldershot and I remember it was right at the start of the season I think they played only two games and I believe I was meant to be going to see them that weekend at Darlington and then basically thank you um, we have a spooky candle now um, and then they suddenly stopped existing and their record was expunged um, so you had this kind of gap, this, em this empty space in, in the, the record was expunged. Their record was expunged. That sounds a bit Stalinist. Yeah, well, there is something Stalinist because I remember when um, Scarborough went um, went belly up a few a few years ago. It happened right near the end of the season. I think it was Scarborough, and when their record was expunged, there was a huge controversy because they couldn't decide whether to um, to allow the results that had already happened or not and that massively affected promotion from the league they were in. I can't remember which way the case went. Um, we don't have access to Wikipedia in, in the pub, unfortunately, but it, it was for non-league football quite a, quite a crisis, a, a legal crisis. Um, but there's something very weird, you think, you know, it, it prompts all kinds of questions when a club disappears, particularly a club with supporters. You think, where, where do those people go? What happens to the ground? Um, if the club is a kind of fulcrum of local, um, <laughs> local political libido almost and, and, and desire and memory, you wonder where, where does all that force go to? Um, does it become a, attach itself to other, other love objects in, I suppose, Freudian or Kleinian terms, or, or is it free free-floating, does it, it become a kind of ambiguous desire? Um, well, in the case of Nunhead, Nunhead FC, who, who mm. disappeared, who, uh, yeah, the reason we wanted to film, uh, film uh, not at that stage yet, the reason we wanted to record in Nunhead Cemetery, um, they disappeared in an era when people would support a number of local teams. Mm. Um, there's tales of people of having staggered kickoff times of people marching from Nunhead to uh, Dulwich Hamlet to watch both games mm. on a Saturday. Um, so maybe that uh, sense of loss wouldn't have existed. Well, the, the sense of loss in... Well, the sense of loss in mm. terms of um, uh, people being at a loss with what to do with themselves. Mm. Okay, so maybe we're looking back to a, a kind of more more polysexual age in which there could be multiple attachments. But um, even then, I think there was with Nonhead from 
as much as I have managed stroke, have been bothered to research. Nunhead's um, were a real force in, in non-league football, particularly southern non-league football, in 1939 at the beginning of the war. Come the end of the war, they weren't there anymore. They'd, um, there was a, a financial issue possibly connected to the war, which meant that they stopped existing and they, they were no longer there. So you'd know it was no longer the case that on um, New Year's Day, I think, you'd have thousands of people traipsing across Peckham Rye going from Nonhead to, to East Dulwich or, or vice versa. Um, so they left a, a space which was never filled. There, there is no Nonhead FC now and the, the ground, which I think was up at where, where Haberdasher Ask's playing fields are now, is, is just... I think uncommemorated. In fact, we're doing a séance here. Some of the barman just came and put a candle on the table. We're wondering if we can use that to uh, to speak to the spirit of, of Nonhead FC. And Robert's concentrating the very hard. Stand, the glass is moving. Okay. It's coming. It's coming through. Yeah. The main stand burnt down in 1936, but as late as the 1970s, a section of the terracing could still be seen next next to the athletics track. Is a, is a spirit saying anything else? Dennis Compton started his football career at Nunhead FC in oh. 1934 before moving to Arsenal. <laughs> but he was best known, of course, as an England and Middlesex cricketer and is as the original grill cream boy. I think the, uh, the pace at which Robert is reading there might tell you the real nature of the seance we're, we're conducting, so we'd like to say thank you to... Um, Transpontine blog. Yes, our... Um, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the amazing word for a, a spirit guide? Quickly remember it. The word for a spirit guide? There is a word for a, somebody who guides... Goldberg. I can't remember this right now. It's, you can look on the Dplay Twitter account where, when, I, when I do recall it. If I was at home, there would be no problem here. Okay, so um, so Nonhead was uh, still or evidence of Nonhead FC was detectable into the 70s. People say obviously Dulwich Hamlet also have a um, a past in this sense, don't they? Because the ground which we go to to watch them play in is not the same as the ground which they were playing in you know, during the, the era of their great success. Um, although it occupies almost the same site and people say that there are... People say that there are... <laughs> and there is an old empty bar. People say that you can still see bits of the terracing um, from the old grounds around the Sainsbury's, I think, mm -hmm. at the bottom of Dog Kennel Hill if you are interested in um, the architecture of disappeared football grounds, which I accept that one might not be. Um, okay, so the, the, there's Nonhead, and then we've got a list, we've made a list of other interestingly disappeared clubs. Middlesbrough, Ionopolis. Um, great name, great kid. Great, great name, so great kid. Combination of wine purple and uh, green, which is actually happens to be the colour scheme of my favourite imaginary football club. <laughs> We're doing an episode of Imaginary Football Club soon, by the way. Um, but um, Middlesbrough, Ionopolis. What was I going to say here? Um, of, of course, that, that's it. Middlesbrough FC themselves went out of business in 1986, mm -hmm. uh, which is why their club crest says 1986, not uh, 1890 or whenever it was. And they they, near, they were very close to actually dying themselves until Steve Gibson came along and uh, resurrected them or you know, brought them back from 
just before the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so Middlesbrough and Ionopolis were one. Uh, Clapham Rovers, do you Clapham think Rovers, Clapham Rovers? FA Cup winners in eight, uh, 1886 or something like that. A year um, that you've clearly just made up. No. <laughs> well, it was definitely in the, Victoria was Queen. Um, stand please for the Queen. Um, they wore green and grey apparently. No, no, red and grey, red and grey. Red and grey's alright, who else plays in red and grey? Sort of urbane 1980s bachelor pads. Cremonese, I think, playing play red and grey, um, potentially. But Clapham Rovers, God knows what happened to them. I and mean, Wanderers, who won the first five FA Cups or something crazy like that, mm. um, they were based in South London as well. And, uh, my God, this is turning into a niche episode, like the dead transplantine football clubs. Um, <laughs> but um, they went back, and they exist again as a sort of um, charity fundraising team who play in like some sort of Sunday league. I'm pretty sure that I played on a pitch uh, for Dulwich Hamlet supporters team just before a Wanderers game on a Saturday a couple of weeks ago. I watched ago, the second actually. half of a Wanderers game and mm. um, had a chat with the, the guy around them, and pleasant enough. <laughs> nice kit, um, but you know, what, Other what they needed some hooligans. <laughs> Other disappeared clubs, uh, Clydebank, uh, Scottish, um, quite a sizeable Scottish club who'd been ailing for a number of years and um, went bankrupt and then had their place in the league bought by a consortium who wanted to resurrect the similarly bankrupt Airdrie. Um, so Clydebank disappeared and re Reemerge as a Scottish junior. Club. So does that mean Airdrie is a is a parasite club? It's effectively so. Like, 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 like the fish tongue parasite. Like the fish tongue parasite, which you want to tell tell me about now. Um, um, yeah, because uh, Clyde Clydeside uh, Gothic football clearly is interesting. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the fish parasite, fish tongue parasite, embeds itself in a fish's tongue. I mean, the fact tongue, fish have tongues is, was news to me until last night, um, and. It then eats the tongue, and it becomes the fish's tongue in a sort of like alien-like way, and then eats the fish's food, and then I don't know what happens then. It's, it sounds like it's my theory is that the fish dies, and therefore the parasite also dies. But two-way death pact. <laughs> um, why murder suicide? What, like, we've also got Belfast Celtic on yeah, this okay, list, the, um, who were the the. 1947, did they, did they go? Like that. Mm. 49, maybe. But you, you may guess from the name, they were a Catholic team in, in Belfast. And, um, but, I mean, they disappeared with a trace. In a way that, and like... Without a trace. They, with a trace. Without a trace. Mm. Um, and it's weird, isn't it? Because you can't imagine clubs of a certain size disappearing without a trace mm -hmm. nowadays. But people accepted it. Yeah, and I think there are, there are other examples um, around... Around Europe, I think there have been a couple of, of uh, Italian teams, for example, who, who disappeared um, around the time of World War II. I can't think exactly who. I can uh, imagine. You know, I can imagine why that might have happened. Well, um, yes, yeah, so, yeah, maybe. I, again, this is something that needs following up, and if anyone wants to send us their research on, yeah, on this would be, an would be very position. interested um, yes we, we are looking for an intern we're going to the job centre plus looking for one yeah. um, what is okay so Belfast Celtic yeah Belfast Celtic um, but, but when, without, well I say without a trace um, they do have the uh, loving memorial of a Toffs shirt available yeah um, but what do, what is spooky about it? Why, why is this spooky? I, I mean, it. I, I find it a little bit chilling. Like, um, 
Yeah, in, in the same way the idea of a ghost train is going. I grew up near an embankment and I used to be terrified about the thought of a ghost train going mm-hmm. by. Ghost trains are scary. Yeah. They're really scary. Um, imagine the old Nunhead, imagine the, the old Nunhead Stadium in a sort of ethereal, ghost-like, misty kind of way, just just mm. popping up again there, um, and then the ghostly, flat-capped people walking along uh, past Peckham Rye towards um, what, what, what they expect to be the old Champion Hill. Instead, they find you know a new, smaller version, um, sort of a. Uh, 21st century weirdos. What is ghostliness? That, that's what you're asking, I think. And what, and what what it means essentially, I think, why why we find ghosts, why we find certain ideas spooky, um, is that something is we nearly always talking about an an absence of something not being there anymore, and yet various emotional attachments to it, or kind of signifiers of the being an attachment remain around. I mean, would you say that that makes sense? Yeah, um, but well, yeah, yeah. I mean, G- generally speaking, I'm not saying that that accounts for everything which is scary, but I think it, it, it accounts for what Are is, they scary? is spooky. No, I don't think they're, they're scary. I think you could. There's a, there's a division on Halloween, isn't there, between the spooky, the, the commemoration of something which is no longer there, and yet there are still attachments to. Um, I'm not sure I've ever been scared on Halloween. No, it's not, no, it's not, not very massively scary. There was one time I sneaked out because my mum was totally against it. She thought like trick or treating was begging, and um, she but she went out one night, and so I made myself a balaclava out of a woolly hat and um, went trick or treating. And I was scared of her finding out. <laughs> that is slightly different. <laughs> um, the. Um, yeah, well, uh, Halloween again is about that idea of the being things which are no longer there to which we still have attachments and, and the idea of stuff. Like it's about the souls of people coming back, yeah. isn't it? The souls yeah. of the uh, Nunhead, mm. uh, Nunhead slash Dulwich fans coming back or whatever. Well, the, the question that the, the ghost prompts us is how do we reaccommodate it in a way? And any anything like this, that if it's still there, we maybe start to think how would we accommodate this thing into our reconfigured. Um, uh, world view if, if you like um, if it was to, to return I mean it's the dilemma which is posed in a number of films about people who come back from wars or in soaps when people in, in inverted commas come back from the dead what is done with that kind of energy which has been um, invested elsewhere uh, kind of the Biden energy again. Did you watch um, The Returns? I, I watched. I watched some of it. You started watching it after me, and then you pers- um, persevered with it, and I yeah. didn't. Um, I, I thought it was. Which did pose very good. And questions. It was. It was fascinating to see. It, it was, I mean, it, it seems to essentially be a, a zombie story, but mm. with you know, you know, at the start of a zombie film, you have that sort of like weird sort of oh, so and so's back, and they're mm. looking a bit off colour. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that drawn out for how many episodes were there like eight episodes or whatever yeah that drawn out for like eight hours Mm. and just exploring the psychological problems of that Mm -hmm. um and they're coming back after you know a different number of years but like um i suppose maybe i need to create an anachronism to to capture the, the, the spookiness and the psychological upset of, of the returned uh, 
what if Nunhead Football Club had a modern football culture and had people very invested in mm. Nunhead FC? Okay, yeah, yeah. But then it disappeared and they had nothing and they weren't able to um, resurrect the club. And then it came back 10 years later, like yeah, nothing had happened. Yeah. And maybe they'd start going to see Dulwich or Millwall or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then what do they do? Yeah. Yeah. This is what it's like. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's quite spooky. <laughs> this, this really should be a sort of high-minded art film rather than a podcast. <laughs> um, it was like when Dirty Den came back in EastEnders, wasn't it? It's exactly like when Dirty Den came back in EastEnders. <laughs> Um, but it, it, it is that kind of thing. It, 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 this is so frequently posed. What what happened if if the dead come back? Yeah. Um, and, and how do we cope with it? And that that is, I suppose, one of the things that we think about when we think about spookiness. Um, how do we re reconfigure? If you see what I mean, because um, lo loss is a question of reconfiguration, isn't it? Um, this is. This is what Freud talks about in Morning and Melancholia, which is, is one of his, his best of essays for a, a morbid uh, individual like me. Um, but he, he talks about the difference between mourning and melancholia. Mourning, mourning is when we successfully, um, we successfully um, detach from, from a particular love object um, through a, a process we call mourning. We, um, we do the work, it's the work of mourning, it's a kind of laborious thing, but we get there, <coughs> we reinvest. Um, melancholia, on the other hand, is when, um, instead of successfully um, uh, detaching ourselves from the object, we sort of internalise it. Um, we we take, it, take it on as part of ourselves, and, and we are therefore kind of um, persistently carrying we, we persist in carrying this thing around with us even though it's no longer there, so we carry the absence with us. Um, so, could you find examples of those two in, fo in football um, fandom? Is that possible? We could, we could speculate on this around FC United, actually, because although Manchester United have very conspicuously not died um, in a financial, or I suppose existential way, in, in a... Um, in another way, they sort of have. Um, they, they, there is a, an idea about what that club are, which has maybe been um, internalised by some of the people who, who, uh, who support FC United, who, who try and, and kind of live that out through that, through the new club. Um, but I mean, it goes back to that original break when these people say, "This is not Man United are no longer the same club for me. They've effectively died. They're dead to me." Um, perhaps. So we'll do something else. So would it be um, more? So would it be melancholia? FC. <laughs> I, I think there is a, a kind of melancholia around um, around FC United because they stand somewhere between having succeeded in mourning and having utterly failed in mourning. And, and don't get me wrong, I really like the club. I, I think that we were just saying on the way down here, um, they still represent for me something of an ideal in terms of what an only a prolonged radicalised boycott. A prolonged radicalised boycott, boycott even though we've been told by other people not to use the phrase boycott, term boycott around it. But yeah. Um, it's. I find. It, I find it almost more interesting in a radical sense because it does maintain some kind of melancholic connection with the old club. 
um, there's there's no disavowal there. There's, there's there's a kind of to me there's a sort of openness about what it is. It's not people you know a lot of people said why didn't you go and support Heidi United or Stanley Bridge or someone like that and they said well no because there are some values from the from the club which we we're, we're internalising here in the new club um, and. Uh, you know, to me, there's an honesty about that, which um, I think it, it denies the perhaps fallacious concept of there being a radical break. Um, there's not this this kind of false reattachment. You, you get it, don't you? People saying, I've stopped supporting Club X and I now support Club Y. Um, and you think, well, does that really happen? Can that really happen? I know that I find... Uh, it does happen. Well, I find going to Dulwich really, really complicated still because I'm always thinking, you know, how, how are Darlington getting on and feeling actually genuinely guilty about this uh, yeah. reattachment I've made. I definitely don't have any of that with the monolithic club I supported in my youth. Yeah. But I had a, I had a gap of sort of uh, miserable uh, directionless wandering in between. Mm. Yes, maybe there was a. You had a period of melancholy, and you have successfully reattached. Um, maybe you have mourned that attachment, although I'm not absolutely sure that you have. Oh, no, I have. I'm, I'm not even sure what the last time for the match was. Anyway. Anyway, so um, we can. Um, Kind of going, I mean, one thing I have got noted down here is that it doesn't. I think that the the spookiness doesn't only um, manifest itself in clubs which have actually ceased to exist. I think there's also a thing about clubs whose fortunes have diminished greatly. That we we know that there is a, a huge history there, um, and we look in old. Oh, sorry, there is one club, and I'm just going to mention this very briefly. There's one club who were a former league club until I think the early 60s or the late 50s. Um, who have who again just do not exist any longer and that's New Brighton. Oh, um, you see them. I when I used to get the, in the league, yeah 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 the, the uh, old third division north when, when I used to get Darlington a lot. Um, Potential name for Whitehawk. <laughs> if they do that, then then Whitehead are even uh, Whitehawk are even more dead to me than they already are. Um, but. Um, in the Darlington programme there used to be a 50 years ago on this day thing or 40 years ago on this day and there would be a league table and there'd be so many clubs in there who, who had something evocative uh, about them because we never played them anymore so there was Barrow obviously still exists, Workington still exists, Southport obviously still exists but not in the capacity as, as league clubs but the really haunting one was always New Brighton and I thought where's New Brighton? Um, yeah. Do you know where New Brighton is? Canada. <laughs> it sounds like a place that we in America. Halfway to. Um, is New Brighton not in Brighton? No. No, no, no. It's, oh, right. It's, uh, they would have been, at the time, the Wirrells of a league club along with Tramway Rovers. So it's, um, they're from Birkenhead, or not quite Birkenhead, but the north end of the oh. Wirral Peninsula facing, facing Liverpool. Somewhere um, intrepid adventurers from the south coast of England <laughs> landed <laughs> thinking it was uh, North America. Well, there were actually two league clubs from New Brighton. There was one called New Brighton Tower, who I believe were formed like Chelsea for the purpose of, of playing at an extant sports ground. And Vaughan has just remembered his Chelsea felt which he has to say here. Then uh, New Brighton um, succeeded them. And New Brighton played in the league until well after World War II. Um, and I think if they, if they exist now, they play in, in the Liverpool League or the Cheshire League or something like that. But they're, you know, um, you know, they're a proper proper club. A couple more from not from a bit earlier. You had um, 
Thames. Uh, Thames. 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 Was Thames Ironworks the old name? Thames Ironworks is the old name for West Ham, but Thames are a different club, and Thames played at huge stadium um, for a couple of seasons. Um, but then similarly you have the clubs who who you see in old league tables who have fallen on really diminished circumstances like Barrow working in Southport a um, couple from a couple from the London area one who's just fell into my head and, and have gone uh, Merthyr Merthyr Town um, we're, in, we're a league club um, oh the other great ghost club Aberdare Athletic like Aberdare Athletic are now in in, in if then they're not even called athletic anymore. They're in then currently in like Welsh Division Five or something like that. But they were in the third division south in the twenties. Right. Wow. Um, so all, all all of these district clubs are diminished clubs. Oh, um, Plymouth United. The first team uh, not connected to Plymouth Argyle. Plymouth United apparently briefly existed. First club to use United in the name. There's only one United. Um, and with that, I think we have a smoke break, and then I'll have my. Um, my fact. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome back X893. <sighs> what if Alistair Crowley had, as legend suggests, aligned the pitch at Stamford Bridge in 1905? The difficulty with that X893 is that that isn't necessarily a counterfactual because you're suggesting that it is potentially true, but um. Well, I think it must be true. Okay, so it's not a counterfactual, it's a, it's a factual. It's like, tell us what happens. What, what are the consequences of Alistair Crowley but, having a line yes. pitch at, at Stamford Bridge? When Which is the only possible explanation for the way the entire history of the 20th century, in terms of global power balance, was yes. structured to uh, financially dope Chelsea. Because you've got the Russian Revolution, you've got the outbreak of the First World War, mm. Crowley did that anyway. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, this is documented. Uh, there's evidence out there. Uh, look it up, people. Uh, Russian Revolution, setting up the Soviet Union, the uh, defeat of Nazism, the Cold War, um, and which eventually won by the Americans, which uh, sparked off the neoliberal shock therapy in Russia, where things were privatized off. Uh, privatized off uh, for a pittance to um, sort of semi-criminals and uh, sexual perverts like Roman Abramovich um, and who then I mean what else you going to do invest your money in a uh, sort of generally unpopular West London football club uh, and now here we are um, people talking as if Chelsea aren't a natural second division football club. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so Alistair Crowley did align the football pitch at Stamford Bridge and it caused millions of deaths. I think that's almost certainly true, that is exactly what happened. Yeah. Uh, if, so I, if I wasn't so lazy I'd be doing a PhD on this right now. Yeah, you've got that historiography is better than sex, he really is wearing a t-shirt that says historiography is better than sex. I'd just like to say that this is before I... <laughs> made love to my uh, my now wife. Uh, I did go through a bit of a historiography ultra phase. Yeah, but he was using uh, Hayden White books as pornography um, on, on the on the subject of historiography. Um, and this is a semi tenuous link. Uh, there's a, a term that we feel obliged to use in our capacity as, as semi theoretical analysts of football, which is ontology. And I'm very sorry for. Um, 
the fact that this will undoubtedly be a partial account because it is a, it is a contested term and I'm not going to go into the full implications of what, of what Jacques Derrida said about this in his, um, in his book from I think 1993, Spectres of Marx. Um, but um, one interesting way in which the term ontology, H-A-U-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y, has been used in theory is to, is to talk about um, futures which never came to fruition, so kind of buried potentials in the past which still haunt us as potentials even though perhaps the moment of their, um, of their possible activation has gone. Um, and one, you know, uh, way in which this has been thought through is in, in kind of political futures which didn't, didn't come to be, uh, technological futures which didn't come to be. Um, and um, maybe we can think about this in, in football, the, f the futures in football which never came to be and yet somehow have never quite gone away, these, these um, lost potentials which, which shadow football as we know it. Vaughan is laughing. Uh, I'm laughing because there's one that sc screams out and <laughs> I've already been told not to use it, but um, uh, <laughs> I think that the popular one mm. and uh, the fact this is popular rather than other potential potentialities maybe says a lot about football fans, but uh, yeah, it's, it's the, uh, the Gaza <laughs> moving to Manchester bloody United one, isn't it? Mm. Yes, you, you quite like the um, David Hurst moving to Manchester. Yeah, I, I think I, I prefer that story because there is something kind of um, spooky about about the idea of David Hurst in, in the first place. Who you, I'm sure that any listeners of a comparable age or older will will remember David Hurst, the, the Sheffield Wednesday striker, who was really quite excellent um, in the late 1980s and early 1990s. A kind of very complete. Um, centre forward, big, strong, fast, had the hardest shot I think in, in Premier League, was, was kind of a, to a certain degree a better Alan Shearer, or, or could have been, but his career was blighted by injury, but Hurst was the player who was supposed to go to United around the time that Eric Cantona did. Um, obviously you get a kind of counterfactual thing there, what happens if, if Hurst had gone to United and, and Cantona hadn't, but there's still this kind of weird, weird kind of... Uh, uncanny feeling I get when I think about about Hurst as a player. What you know was he the, the great lost England international? Was he the great lost Manchester United player? Um, not um, not not properly hauntological, I, I think. But because um, hauntology is about ideas and technologies, so yeah. Well, well in one partial account of it, it is. And I, I suppose when Derrida was using the term, he was he was talking about the way in which in 1993 people had begun to talk about Marxism as if it was a dead um, yeah. political philosophy. But and it hadn't quite gone away. Well, it still and forced it's capitalism to account for itself, or, or, or still demanded um, a kind of accountability on the part of capitalism. And Marxism's going through a, a boom phase now after the financial crisis, or relative boom phase. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I think anyone worth listening to has to be open to Marx. Yes, now. certainly, yeah. Yeah. Um, which relates to football because... Um, because football is, is um, subject to the same um, epistemic and epochal shifts that, uh, that society at large is, right? This is what we were 
kind of yeah, you're talking about um, disgusting. We, people talk about football as if it was a continuum, but there's very obvious uh, epochs and eras that yeah. can be uh, divided into. Um, uh, and they nearly always match exactly the economic paradigm yeah. of the moment. Um, that that uh, f- football is always it, it's kind of economic paradigm in, in my, and, and social paradigm in microcosm, isn't it? So. You know, in um, in the 1970s, and we all watch kind of old clips of 1970s football on television. You have this really weird kind of ideological mix on the field between, an, uh, I suppose, the good socialist idea of, of the football club as as this unity, this thing which draws people together, do good team play. This sort of cynicism, which has made the political cynicism, which hung around the 1970s, which has never really been fully documented. You know, the, the kind of plots that were going on in the background, the, the kind of potentially the plot to remove Harold Wilson from power that MI5 oh, yeah, discussed, the that sort of maybe discussed, drip, drips out, yeah. release documents and things, and mm. like willing to flood Essex, Flavoured, and um, City of London. That was an early 80s one, which mm. came out recently. But so so you have have that kind of political cynicism which goes on in the football field. You think about the Leeds United team of the era, um, but you also it's have defensive style, and uh, the increasingly defensive style of play. But you also have, you know, you look at the players from that period, that kind of long hair, that kind of hangover from the sixties. So you have the the, the um, individualism as well, yeah. which is acting against that kind of more socialist idea of football, perhaps. Um, so the seventies, you could period, you know, think of. Uh, football in a time of crisis. Yeah, fo- football in a time, a time of social democratic crisis. Yeah. Uh, the 80s, you have um, uh, uh, an interesting kind of spirit of what's presented as technological innovation, but all these innovations ultimately, I suppose, fail. It's the era of plastic pitches. Yeah, um, someone linked to a plastic pitch um, on a forum and uh, well, um, a YouTube video of Luton against Liverpool mm. um, to kind of like, yeah, look how horribly the ball bounces. <laughs> and I, I had to reply, like, to be honest, the, the, the thing that sticks out the most to me is how strange it is to see goalkeepers picking up back passes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the plastic pitch I wasn't so concerned about. Mm. Um, they used to play on grass. <laughs> Great Terry Venables futurist novel but maybe the 80s is the era in which you begin to see the you see the deregulation mm-hmm. of football to a certain extent the financial deregulation of football um, and the result that the way that results in a monopoly for some clubs so the, the 70s is probably a more open era in terms of which clubs are succeeding um, by the middle of the 80s admittedly you have Watford and Southampton finishing second in the in the first division in the early 80s by the middle of the 80s is that shift towards kind of dominant clubs yeah um, which was really entrenched in the 90s I suppose with a couple of exceptions like Blackburn winning league because of enormous financial doping um, but has really really taken hold now um, but there is always I think a kind of obvious link between um, between the economic paradigm and, and what's happening in, in football um, and we period well we periodise unconsciously according to what was happening in the broader social sense at the time. There's always a kind of poetic link between the, our image of football at a given moment in time and what's happening, happening in a, a wider sense. But when, in, in football, almost more than in certain other cultural fields I can think about, 
the paradigm shift never occurs in an absolute sense. There's never a clean break with the previous epoch. So there's always a hangover mm -hmm. from from the last epoch. So one example is when you look at a you, you look at a lot of football videos from the 1990s, uh, the mid to late 90s. Um, and the grounds, and the grounds are this really odd mix, aren't they, of, of kind of new uh, cantilevered stands, uh, clean plastic seating, um, sort of shiny concourses, and then the camera cuts around and you see there's a bit of disused terracing at one end. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of, there's that, archi that architectural uh, remnant. There's a, uh, I went to um, England women against Wales women, um, last weekend and at the den and um uh it's not the first time i've been to the den at all but um it's the first time i'd sort of noticed that the contrast between the boarding on one side and the other the advertising hoarding is um it's very interesting on one side it's all sort of like uh bookies uh sports manufacturers um some sort of uh, transnational drink conglomerate but on the other side it's like Southwark scrap metal yeah and yeah, absolutely. it was a very um, clear divide of some sort of um, epoch change from football yeah absolutely so advertising is, is definitely one thing do you remember in the early 90s when in, in big televised games particularly in the cups there always used to be adverts for Jiffy Condoms around the edge of the pitch. Yeah. I remember uh, Man United Leeds in the 1991 League Cup semi-final. I was burning up all the way through the game with embarrassment, so I think I was watching this <laughs> with my mum, and um, there was just this, this black advert for Jiffy Condoms with yellow writing on it, and, and I sat there thinking, oh my God, oh my God, sex, sex on the television. Um, Apparently in the Premier League, this relates to Halloween in no way whatsoever, um, you have to have those LED animated uh, advertising boards now and um, I only found out about this because in my work which involves having to wade through tons of useless news information there was a local Brighton news story about uh, how the chief executive at Brighton and Hove Albion wants to install them so they're Premier League ready and the players won't be startled by the uh, LED boarding, <laughs> which apparently can happen. It could be quite trippy, couldn't it, actually, playing football? Yeah. In so, I mean, yeah, if all you're used to is the two LED lights of, of a local fan's voodoo stick and you're suddenly surrounded by thousands of the things, um, yeah, it must be weird. It's like, some, it's like, it's like the disco punk revolution. <laughs> Of, of a kind um, Halloween Halloween but we were talking about kind of um, things that stick over from, from one epoch to the other mm. I find that and I don't particularly find that at, at Dulwich because it's a new ground so it's built in the early 90s obviously but sometimes going into a non-league football ground and I'm writing about this in, in my book which I'm not sure I should use D-Play to promote um, there's no ISBN number yet so we can't give that out yeah. Yes, there, there is no book yet. Um, but one thing I find going into non-league grounds um, is that they have immediately this capacity to transport you back into another footballing epoch very frequently. And at non-league grounds, you, you sometimes find that there is one tiny part of the ground which has been, if you like, neoliberalised. There'll be like one new stand or something like that. But 
they still advertise, you know, there's still a raffle in the in the social club. Um, kind of place where you can imagine yeah, them doing so a disco on a Saturday club. night where they don't Not play. Like, couple you know, does remind me of like the social club I used to go over to with my friend's family in Spain. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's another sense of loss. That's yeah, the complete sort of loss of any any sort of working class culture in London, um, which things like Dolly Chang are the only non-religious relics of. Mm. But um, that's another thing. That's for this is deep gentrification. <laughs> but it, forthcoming in, radical urbanist podcast. In the book, I talk about um, how. Um, I'm intending to talk about how going into non-league grounds is a bit like going into a Mike Nelson installation. I don't know if you do you know Mike Nelson and stuff. Only like, vaguely. But his installations tend to deal with the kind of uh, cracks in our understanding of, of a particular historical epoch. So the way in which there are always tensions grinding against the the existing paradigm. I keep on saying paradigm because of Russell Brand last week on uh, on Paxman, which I'm sure everybody heard. So, um, I'm about to have a go at Joe for uh, crying about his his great 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 grandmother being sold into slavery. There is this kind of grinding against the paradigm. I think not not grinding in the sense that you want it to mean. Um, not, not in the sense that Russell Brand means. Um, in in non-league football, it seems like there is some kind of accidental resistance just because these things persist in in being there. They have a kind of um, existential thickness if you like which uh, they're, they're, they're carbuncles on, on neoliberalism is carbuncle the word I'm looking for? It's not, I think so it? it sounds right um, bambazzle bambazzle yes um, yeah uh, no um, you're right it's this weird not even underside is it it's like not even underside not even parasite it's mm. Just clinging on. But well, going into some non-league grounds can be a bit like going into a squat. I think, yeah. Where you feel like you walk through that gap in the sheen or, or the facade of uh, how we're supposed to live, if you see what I mean, and you see a different way of organising things or, or, or doing things. Um, non-league football clubs. Well, yeah, maybe not in the conference, but they're they're ready for communism. Like that, um, they're pretty much run by volunteers. I mean, not all of it, but like the, the actual, the the bones of it, the people working on turnstiles mm. and stuff, um, the stewards. I mean, I mean, there's players admittedly, but people love playing. People play football for free. But, but yeah, there is something slightly pre-revolutionary about. Um, about a non-league football club because they I mean paradoxically and more no not paradoxically more dialectically because they tend to have an ownership structure which is quite extreme is the ownership structure at some non-league clubs is closer to the ownership structure of Chelsea or, uh, or Manchester City you get there's a kind of absolutism there isn't there um, there is somebody who is completely economically um, has some kind of exclusive economic control over the club quite frequently, um, which produces a, a tension, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Produces a contradiction because you have all of these uh, people who are doing doing it for love. If you see what I mean. Yeah. I mean, they might not realise it, but they're they're being very communistic. Mm. Um, 
This is a conversation about football and other things. <laughs> um, Which is the whole rationale of this is deep play. This is deep play. This is uncannily like the, the first episode ever. This is a revenant of episode one, series one. Yep. Season, each, each uh, series will begin with a, a rambling, wide-ranging discussion about, um, about football that um, will go everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Well, because the, the first episode of series one was, was the Against Modern Football episode, wasn't it? And, yeah. and now we are... Uh, um, starting afresh. Uh, I think by considering past football and, and the inherent spookiness of football. Um, okay, there there is another form of spookiness or, or kind of morbidity around football, which I want to think about in this episode, and that's the, the relationship specifically between football and death. Yeah. Um, so uh, fanatophobes turn away now, yeah, including my wife. Not that she listens to this. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Um, I think I put it quite succinctly when we were doing. <laughs> Did our, you? When we were, <laughs> I, I cite the great Robert Vaughan. Um, when we were doing our our bare bones uh, planning for this, um, football. Death seems more real in football. Mm, yeah. Uh, more real than than in pop music, where it seems to be part of the career progression. Um, more real perhaps even than in our own lives mm -hmm. um, because the, the figure of the footballer remains like that futurist painting which uh, maybe I'll have to add to our photo blog for this episode um, which uh, depicts the footballer as a sort of incredible uh, multi-directional multi uh, force of energy mm. um, and for it to die to especially for it to die on the pitch seems to gut us in, mm. in, in some way to, it seems to absolutely uh, appall us more than more than uh, let, let's use the example of uh, the someone under a train on the tube I mean people just sort of yeah, complain I mean, about their leg train experience that we've, well yeah wankers yeah. do um, yeah but this is an experience that many if not most people will have had and it, it's treated in such a weirdly blasé way mm -hmm. I think and um, I think I've had that experience on several occasions and it's really quite I mean the obviously horrible thing is seeing how people don't reflect or ruminate on it at all and yeah. then that thing where people get in their phone and say you're someone's self some idiots yeah and, and you, you think well is this um you know there are two things here either they are really that selfish and horrible or this is a defense mechanism um but it seems that there's still the option of the defense mechanism there whereas death in, in football seems to me to be unavoidable because as you say the game is supposed to be a kind of celebration of, of uh, life kind of like the adverts and the opening credits for world cups and stuff yeah reflect in some ways accurately what we think about football mm. it's it's just like yeah <laughs> yay football's great let's wave a flag let's have a good time um, I think most people go to football for fun some of them lose track from that but and I mean it doesn't matter who dies I'm always very shocked by someone dying and I remember my my grandpa when he was terminally ill uh, with cancer uh, sort of the last um, 
proper day I spent with him. Um, we were watching some football on the telly and the news came through that Gary Speed had killed himself. And he was absolutely mortified by it. And I did get the sense that he thought, he just found it very wrong that it should be, should be Gary Speed and not him. Um, so I kind of, I, I don't want to like score sort of hyperbole points out of my, my grandpa's illness which I don't think I am doing but he was you know Gary Speed's death seemed more real than his own impending death mm. in a way or more visceral yeah but I, I think even in um, a representational sense uh, death and football is always a kind of very shocking combination I remember this sounds really flippant in the circumstances, but it's not intended to be. There was in, in the 80s, there's a, there's a Royal Rovers strip in which I think uh, seven or eight of the players are killed by a terrorist bomb. And I, uh, it was before my time of reading it, but there was something kind of unmitigatedly shocking about that. Um, I remember in Match magazine, when I first started watching football, there was... Um, a, a strip about some the, the one comic strip they had was a strip about some Sunday league players and in the last ever strip they closed it down by the goalkeeper gets killed by the crossbar falling on his head and this is a, a comic for nine ten year olds <laughs> um, well, and I remember being utterly utterly appalled by that and and the first couple of times and, and I'm not sure um, you know, for a number of reasons, I'm not going to say what instances I'm talking about, but I remember the first couple of times when I was aware of footballers dying during their careers. I was really, really horrified by that. More horrified than by kind of similar horrific political events which were happening at the time, like the Gulf War or, mm. or that kind of thing. Um, I did a um, Level 1 FA coaching course of, uh, about five years ago, and mm. they were one of the things they obsessed about the most was the risk of crossbars killing your 10 year old goalkeeper mm. and so yeah maybe that strip was part of the, uh, okay. the campaign right, against yeah. this evil I didn't know about that was it a genuine genuine concern when they're, when they're not fully moulded yeah yeah but they, they just sort of banged on about checking it that was far more that was like the most important detail mm. it was a bit weird I was not sure how, how common it is oh dear <laughs> um, one of the um, I think there are a couple of, of deaths on, on the field of play that I think are quite interesting in that sense of uncanniness that they produce and one occurred in the 1930s which was the Celtic goalkeeper John Thompson um, he was uh, mortally, as it turned out, injured coming out to meet the uh, the Rangers striker Sam English in an old firm derby. Um, and I think um, Thompson was from well, was from Fife actually, rather than in Glasgow. But uh, for his funeral, um, you had Rangers and Celtic fans coming out. Like Forty thousand turned up. But a ridiculous number. I think Jonathan Wilson covers this well in his in his book on goalkeepers. Um, but so so that's one. The other one I find really spooky, partly because Roy of the Rovers again um, kind of a, adapted this idea was the death of uh, Tony Alden, who was a, a player who played for a, a now non-existent amateur club called Highgate, not Highgate in London, but Highgate in Birmingham, who was killed in a lightning strike on the pitch in an FA Amateur Cup game in I think the late 60s or early 1970s. Um, thank you. Um, 
the um the barmaid in this quite gentrified pub is wearing some sort of satanic t-shirt I kid you not carry on um, did you see it? it's like she's a lining Stanford Bridge or something <laughs> Roy of the Rope is towards the demise of, the, of that strip um, um, had a, a the, uh, the demise of that comic had a strip called Buster's Ghost which was about a a corrupt football player played for a struggling first division club whose cousin was a football player who died in a Mark Bolam style car crash and um, then came back to haunt him and influence his decisions and um, and then when they decided that having one ghost in the strip wasn't enough they had an older ghost come back who'd been killed in a lightning strike on a, on a football pitch clearly based on the yeah. episode that I'm talking about and I find it really really unsettling reading that didn't Roy Race lose his leg he did indeed I remember I, I still have my copy of the which last which is, is kind last of episode. worse than death for, for a football man like Roy Race uh, he died in, uh, no he didn't die he, he lost his uh, helicopter he his crash in the, a helicopter crash when he was going to a non-league ground to, to scout a, a <laughs> midget Turkish dribbler from, uh, <laughs> from Greenwich uh, I think it was actually a fullback. If I, I think back to the last black-covered episode properly, um, but the, what I'm getting at through all this kind of mix between morbid, morbidity and us being a little bit flippant is um, yeah. I'm being flippant about about the Rover's death. So I'm not being flippant about a real one. There, there is something uncanny about football. Football is always shadowed by by this. Um, By this really weird affect, I think it's it's um, and it's difficult to pin down exactly. But one of the things that really engages us with football is is that affect, um, that uh, not not quite ever feeling settled. This this weird sense of the past intruding into the, the present and into the future. I'm halfway through reading a journal article about um, the accelerating number of football statues. Uh, and how it relates to uh, some mm. sense of remembrance. But I'm only halfway through it, and uh, so I shan't say anything. But are we saying that there's something inherently morbid about football? Yeah, almost. I think we are, and I think um, the Spanish have have put it beautifully in in words or in one word. And apologies if this sounds, you know, oh, football hipster, etc., etc. Um, yeah, I'm going to mention the existence of football uh, in a foreign country. Fuck yourselves. Uh, morbo, it's about Spanish word morbo, which appears to have. Uh, I'm not any expert in Castilian, but it appears to have three meanings. One is sporting rivalry. So, like Barcelona against Real Madrid or other derbies is is a match of morbo. Um, it also means morbid fascination and it also means sexual attraction now those seem quite disparate but when you think about it it begins to feel right um, because you know a morbid there's a morbid fascination in uh, sporting rivalry occasionally sometimes the other team won't play ball and you just have to slap them around the face um, and there's a morbid fascination in, in finding someone sexually attractive or at least there is with me in the way I just reflect on the uh, exquisite form of, of my wife's body. Um, Robert just made a, a 
a, a film that I can only, a, a, a face that I can only describe as being a, a sex face from a film when he was saying that, by the way. My wife is very, very beautiful and I love her very much. Um, and, and so I, I think these, these three things um, sort of meld together in, in, a, in, a, in a morbid delight, um, which is bloody brilliant for Halloween. Uh, but but for all year round, I, I think football fans. In the same way we said football fans need to open themselves up to jouissance mm. more, uh, I think football fans need to open themselves up to morbidity. Um, well, well, this is what I think, and, and this is one of my big problems with modern modern football. And, and we're already bored of the term modern football, aren't we? You know, mm. even even Stand AMF have uh, changed their yeah. names to uh, modern football. Might be a more boring phrase than football hipster. Um, but um, one of the big problems with with kind of big football and, and the kind of large culture around it is it's so kind of um, defensively non-morbid if you like it e even when it tries to deal with death it does it in a rather or deal with um, deathly nuss it does it in a kind of uh, horribly repressed way. I think about um, the, the kind of pray for hashtag, you know, the, the, you know pray for thing X, pray for um, pray for Muamba, this, this sort of thing. It, it, there's a kind of emotional constipation there, isn't there? And, and it's as if they, these are people who, um, or, or, or there's a, a almost ideological thing to not really acknowledge that maybe one of the real, really, um, Dominant, effective forces within football is that morbidity or deathliness, um, yeah. and it's all life and banter and, and hilarity, and uh, rather than uh, nostalgia and melancholia and um, morbidity and the um, anxiety and uh, other abstract nouns, which. Uh, Detail what, what Robert and I like generally, but <laughs> um, I think the message for um, the literally dozens of football fans listening is to remember that morbidity in football is for life and not just for Christmas. Oh, Halloween! Oh, Halloween! <laughs> um, was there anything else you wanted to? Crowbar. No, I, I think we've we've pretty. Excited. I think that, I think we've managed to somehow keep it together. I think everyone should adopt a dead team as a second club. That, that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, dead team day as a, instead of non-league day. This is brilliant. I like this. Hashtag we, that shit yeah. right now. And we could go to the go to the ground. We could like what we want is none head FC ultras. <laughs> on 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 um. <laughs> let's fuck it. Let's do it tomorrow. Like um. Go we'll, have a dash we'll go, now. They won't stop. They won't stop you using flares there. Um. And black robes. I think the police might have us uh, have a problem with us going onto a, a school playing fields and setting off flares. So they are fucking fascists, aren't they? We're going to get Harry Slopes on again. We're going to talk about what a load of fucking dick smashers they are. We, we are we are clearly missing Stokes and, and Neven and Panton and all of our proper empirical researchers. Yeah. In, in poor excuse. For but anyway, you know, the the moral of the story as we as we leave you going into uh, no doubt. Um, Spooky Halloween <laughs> in in no racist costumes um, is that one uh, you know we should all uh, adopt dead clubs as our second clubs yeah.
Um, I'm adopting Nunhead FC as of now. I can't decide between Middlesbrough and Upolis. Oh. Uh, oh. And, uh, and Nunhead. Football golf hipsters. <laughs> because if it was Nunhead, that would feel like a, I was, again, kind of rejecting. So what, what we would do is, we'd, instead of going to pubs before Dulwich Hamlet games, we'd go and, we'd go and watch the, uh, the game with some sort of bizarre seance and chanting and whatever. And then, having exhausted ourselves, or whipped ourselves up into a state of gothic frenzy, we'd then go to Dulwich and make ourselves seem even weirder than we usually do. <laughs> Um, I think this is enough. I think we've uh, we've breached an hour, which uh, in total I think we have, yeah. which um, is is a horrific uh, Halloween treat for you. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna leave you. Um, I have been uh, Robert's husband of Malloy Vaughan. Um, you have been Joe Kennedy. Joe Kennedy. Yeah. Joe Kennedy. Joe Kennedy and I'm gonna say goodbye goodbye